Welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 229th episode, our guest is Eli Merritt. A political historian at Vanderbilt, Eli Merritt has written about the dangers of demagogues to democracy for The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Seattle Times, Chicago Tribune, Newsday, and Philadelphia Inquirer, among dozens of other news outlets. He writes a Substack newsletter called American Commonwealth that explores the origins of the United States' political discontents and solutions to them. His new book, How to Save Democracy, Advice and Inspiration from 95 World Leaders, is a collection of 423 quotations derived from the first International Summit for Democracy and was published March 14th by Amplify Publishing Group. And now on to the show. Uh, my name is Eli Merritt. I've done a number of things in my life. Most, most uh, sort of appropriate to what I'm doing now is I'm a political historian at Vanderbilt University and um, an advocate for democracy. I write a Substack newsletter called American Commonwealth, where I try to lay out both the discontents and dysfunctions of our current democracy. And then to my best ability, I try and provide solutions to those problems and dysfunctions. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I have lately put together a, a collection of essays, which includes seven of my op-eds called The Curse of Demagogues, Lessons Learned from the Presidency of Donald J. Trump. And then after that, I collected uh, 433 quotations from the first Summit for Democracy, which has just come out in the book called How to Save Democracy. Um, advice and inspiration from 95 world leaders and getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, I have a history book, which is my real labor of absolute years called disunion among ourselves, the perilous politics of the American revolution, which is coming out this uh, June. I'll, I'll stop. I will say this. I'm on my second career. I practiced psychiatry for 20 years before pivoting in 2018. Uh, while I was visiting scholar at Vanderbilt, I decided to pivot to writing history and uh, and political commentary, because like a lot of people, I felt uh, our democracy is in trouble. So I decided I would uh, become an active citizen instead of a passive citizen. Right. Well, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that uh, career change. Uh, how was your old career? Did you did you like it? I mean, uh, you did it for a long time. I assume so. <laughs> you must have liked it a lot. But I I really did. I practiced psychiatry for again about twenty years. And my area of specialty was was psychotherapy more than psychopharmacology, mm. but I did both things. Okay. So uh, my area of expertise in psychiatry is is in depression, and I treated a lot of young people, by which I mean between the ages of fifteen and thirty. Very meaningful work. It was actually incredibly difficult to um, make the change, to make the pivot into a history and, again, political writing or democracy uh, work or democracy advocacy. But I had actually majored as an undergraduate in history, and I actually at that time had been planning to go to law school and probably into maybe into constitutional law or I had some thoughts of politics. But I, I pivoted at that time into psychiatry, which had a lot to do with I had my I had an episode of identity crisis and depression, which struck me pretty hard in my early 20s. And I just decided, I, I didn't consciously decide to go into psychiatry because it was a heal thyself doctor pathway. 
but I really felt that medicine was a far more meaningful thing to do with my life than other pathways. And so uh, I'm coming back to my original love. In a, in a way, psychiatry was a, a, a tangent, and I'm coming back to my original area of major and interest, which, again, is history and politics. That's really interesting, yeah. Um, but tell me about the Summit for Democracy, because, uh, as you said, you, you've written this book regarding the one, not this year's, but the, the previous one. Um, talk a little bit about that and what kind of inspired this book. Well, uh, and maybe we can talk some too, Rob, about what has been lately on my mind is, is one of the injunctions, so to speak, you know, in the book that was offered by the Summit for Democracy is for folks to get involved, particularly at times of crisis and democracy. So maybe we can, I've been thinking a lot about that question of what does that mean to get involved and what are the challenges? Um, but somewhat related to that, I've been studying uh, psychiatry pretty in, pardon me, democracy pretty intensively for the past five years. And um, it, I approached the first Summit for Democracy, which is in 2021, really because I wanted to myself learn more about democracy. I'm always taking notes uh, on uh, when I'm ex in, in the audience, so to speak, hearing people talk and telling me about democracy. This was a remarkable opportunity to learn about democracy because it was over 100 world leaders and I also believe that we Americans get frequently kind of caught in the tunnel vision. And there's mm -hmm. a big problem we have, obviously, with exceptionalism, et cetera. So I thought, wow, this is interesting. Uh, there's democracies from all over the world with leaders from vast different backgrounds, racial and religious. There's a lot of island democracies. And I just wanted to, to learn. But as I was learning and sort of taking notes on how democracy works, I recognize there are a lot of beautiful things being said, and I'm a big I'm a big fan of inspirational uh, letters and quotations and speeches by MLK and Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. So I recognize there were some real jewels here. So I just started taking more careful notes, making sure to get the quotations correct, and they ended up in in the book, as you said, called How to Save Democracy. And I would say half of them are sort of beautiful, inspirational quotations about democracy. The other half are really instructional, really teach us about critical aspects of democracy, like the rule of law and equality and environmental issues is, is important to democracy today. So I, I did it for myself, but then I decided these, these quotations have been very helpful to me in my development as a, a advocate for democracy. And I also find that I can go back to this book of quotations as a place of, of comfort and hope and inspiration so I thought maybe others would find the book to be valuable as well. So that's how it ended up being published. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to ask if you had any favorite quotations from the book that you wanted to read right now. Let's see a lot. So maybe we can scatter them <laughs> a bit. Uh, well, I think that one of the topics that interests me the most in a democracy and, and what acts as a serious source of dysfunction within a democracy is disinformation and specifically not just general disinformation disinformation is always counterproductive and and noxious to a society and especially a democracy but the disinformation about elections is a critical thing uh, that is very dangerous and now we're into an era, era now in the united states of disinformation about the
the rule of law. So these, you can have disinformation, you know, I guess about the local store down the street, and that's, that's counterproductive. But when you get into disinformation about the things that are the heart and soul and cornerstones of democracy, you're in real trouble. So one of the uh, quotations from a world leader that struck me uh, from the first summit was uh, something like, disinformation uh, is a bullet that strikes at the heart of democracy. That really resonates with me in a very huge way. Um, there's a lot of talk relating to disinformation. Um, another of the world leaders discussed, which I agree with, the fact that we are in a radical digital transformation uh, currently and that it is incumbent upon us. We must make sure that the digital transformation is a net positive and not a net negative for our democracy. Uh, so that's, that's one of the more instructional quotations. But, you know, I think <clears throat> democracy has a soft side and a hard side. And one of the things that's really resonated with me most about the uh, quotations, and these are from a lot of the island democracies is the way I think of them. There was, a, uh, there was discussion of the fact that we better be careful and not take our democracy for granted for many reasons, but recognizing that democracy is the only form of government, and these are short quotations that were used, only form of government where human beings have the opportunity for self-actualization and self-realization, only form of government that gets behind uh, the pursuit of, of dignity for human beings and for personal and human fulfillment. Um, so that, those are some. Another one I think of is by the, the former prime minister of Barbados, named, a wonderful name, Mia Amor Motley, said that what makes their democracy work and what they're um, devoted to is seeing one another, hearing one another, and caring for one another. And in the rough and tumble of our democracy today, we can sometimes think this is, you know, mushy stuff that is really not part of the core of what democracy is. But I disagree. That doesn't only come from Mia Amor Motley. Uh, it's a heart and soul of what MLK taught us. It's a heart and soul of what Lincoln taught us. Yeah, and they said all that about misinformation before ChatGPT and all that stuff. So, <laughs> we asked. I mean, you're, now you're pointing out. I mean, we think that the, the simple, perhaps, hopefully not, simple forms of disinformation that we are are suffering from today are bad enough. But we do, as you're alluding to, we have massive challenges of AI and deep fakes. I know. So, yeah, that, that takes us into the realm of really recognizing, which is one of the dominant themes that I think about and talk about is the importance of ethical leadership within a democracy. This is something that we've taken for granted and we don't understand as much as we should that democracy is not just an adversarial system where you know folks come together and, and battle it out, so to speak, and everything works out as though there's an invisible hand. All of that can be true, but it, it must. The, the, the Greeks and the Romans identified this and, and onward through all the history of democracy. This concept of civic virtue that was so important and discussed by the Romans is what I now think of as ethical leadership. But uh, so this stuff is essential. And if we're programming AI or creating programs for AI to program itself, however you want to think about it, these algorithms, I sit sometimes and think, well, it's impossible to get ethical AI, or uh, there's no such thing as ethical deep fake, I suppose, without the programmers or the leadership of, or the, those who are creating the programs being ethical themselves. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we've got a lot to we got a lot of challenges ahead of us, and that's why it's a great value for everyone who can to to find some way to get involved. Uh, because that's now I'm somewhat taking us to the thing I've been thinking about the most is one of the injunctions, as I said, or counsels uh, in the book is to get involved. The people have been asking me about that, and I've I've really been thinking about it and really recognizing that, that this idea of get involved in democracy. And I get an email at least every other day that, that says something like, you know, all hands on deck. But I'll just walk you through a little bit my my latest thinking, and I hope to continue to develop this, I do believe that it's essential and of great value to a citizen of a democracy to get involved with democracy, and it also helps the democracy itself. But in, it, for, for those who are thinking about, oh, should I get involved with democracy? I think we have to start with recognizing how very difficult it is, in fact, to figure out what a person can or, or should do or is able to do within democracy. So that's the first place is for us to kind of acknowledge, you know, this is, it's very difficult to figure this out. For some people, maybe they find it and go straight to work, but for most people, it's difficult. And then another principle that I would suggest is of great importance is for everyone in a democracy to recognize that you are, in fact, very important to that democracy, uh, that the democracy depends upon you and you depend on the democracy. So a lot of folks feel like, wow, these problems are intractable and massive. I mean, what, what good can I possibly do? And I think that each person in their own small way, and for all of us it is a small way, we can make a big difference. And not only that, I have found in my work in democracy, it's extraordinarily meaningful. So like I was saying earlier, that psychiatry is very meaningful for me. I find the work, you know, the attempt to help you know, restore our democracy the fight against demagoguery and disinformation and to fight for ethical democracy. It's very, it's very meaningful work at the end of the day. So, all right, that was my prelude, uh, believe it or not. Um, but, but I think this idea of getting involved with, with democracy, we can make it easy for people, uh, sort of step one. And that is the first thing I found I needed to do is to study democracy. It can't really get involved until you have developed your own mental framework of what, what democracy is and how it works. I think of I think of a house where which is having problems, and you have a general contractor go in and uh, try and assess the problems and try and begin to do repair. But if that general contractor doesn't have any idea how a house works, how the structure is, they're very frustrated, and they might even be counterproductive. So step one is to study democracy and um, formulate your own understanding of what democracy is. And I can share later what my mental models are, and then. If, if a person gets to that stage of having their own mental model of what democracy is, then kind of looking for the intersection between an individual's uh, interests and abilities and maybe even passions, and that's where interesting things can begin to happen once you have a framework and then you identify what your interest is. So I've talked about tithing, this whole concept of how much money a person is supposed to give the church. You know, 10% of your income was a concept from the Middle Ages. I think a nice goal is to tithe our time, not necessarily money for democracy. Uh, but I will say also fear of failure comes in pretty hugely. I think that's a big obstacle for people in getting involved with a lot of risky things and new projects like uh, getting involved with democracy. So that's some of what I've been thinking about. We can talk more about that if you wish or other things. 
Oh, sure. Well, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, but one thing I did want to talk about is the fact that the invasion of Ukraine happened in the, between the time of the first summit for democracy and this new one. Uh, how did that change the flavor of this year's summit for democracy? That's, I think that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> as you're saying, the first summit uh, for democracy happened in December of uh, 2021, and the, the war made by Putin on uh, Ukraine happened uh, in February, so two or three months later. And I, I did attend not all, but uh, virtually, uh, a lot of the sessions of the second summit for democracy, which just was uh, last month in, in March. And certainly there was great attention, uh, particularly in the beginning, placed upon Ukraine, but there wasn't as much as I had thought. The summit did, for the most part, get behind uh, what, what was the 10-point plan of, um, of Zelensky and Ukraine, uh, but it actually focused even more on disinformation, and it was very broad. I thought it might narrow itself down in light of the that global threat to democracy, but it it was just a one aspect of the um, of the su- second summit, not all of it. Hmm. But uh, but I, I I personally feel, and obviously I'm not alone, that that if you look at history, this is the first act of uh, significant territorial imperialism, which the Western world has experienced since World War II, and that is something. This is kind of the hard side of democracy. That is something we must fight against, and certainly. However it comes out, compromises do happen, but however it comes out, the, the West and democracy really has to uh, experience a victory in Ukraine whenever, whenever that might come. And further, it's important to recognize what we're dealing with in Putin. As, as I mentioned, my first career was as a psychiatrist, and so we, we, are, we are dealing with an authoritarian um, but I saw something pretty funny the other day. Uh, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it said, we need to recognize who Putin's inner circle is, who his intimate counselors are that are driving him forward in what he's doing. <laughs> and it said the, the, these counselors are Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. Yeah. Of course, we're imperialist-minded czars uh, from history. I have long, even before that, recognized or really believed that Putin was is sort of possessed of a Peter the Great mentality. So he's a very, very much a non-modern thinker. He's a he, he he's an imperialistic thinker in some ways from another century. And as we as we were discussing, I think the most critical thing is to reassert uh, the vital principle that. Territorial imperialism ended with World War I. It ended with World War I. He has resumed territorial imperialism. And it's important to recognize, as it's discussed, that there could be somewhat of a domino effect from Putin uh, winning the war in Ukraine. So that, on the global level, uh, that's the work before uh, democracies is in Ukraine currently, and hopefully it won't spread to other places. And then domestically, we have... In this country, which is my area of focus, we have the grave problems of uh, d- demagogues in in politics, 
Trump being the leading demagogue, authoritarian demagogue would be the most accurate um, uh, political science uh, description to use, but also in the media. So we've got the disinformation problems and the demagogue problems, which are causing incredible corruption in American democracy today. So all hands on deck is correct, uh, but if but but we have to remember that's a tough thing. It, it's an intellectual and emotional journey for each of us to figure out uh, how exactly we find our way forward in getting involved with uh, democracy. Um, one thing I've heard all my life is, well, it's not a democracy; it's a republic. What do you What do you have to say to that? <laughs> well, I can tell you this: I really wish very much. It, it's impossible to do really, but I really wish, wish very much we would both go back to calling our political system a republic. And um, I wish we would deeply understand what that is uh, because democracy is a true and in some ways unfortunate misnomer for the type of government and political system we have. Democracy in some ways the original form of democracy, which is essentially the people coming together in the assembly and making all decisions. That's sort of what's called pure democracy or direct democracy. And for complex reasons, that worked pretty well for about 100 years in ancient Athens, but then it did not work well. It really fell apart in this manner of demagogues emerging and becoming authoritarian. So a republic or representative government is, is a form of government where we elect officials to make decisions, but we also have separation of powers and checks and balances. So it's a much more complex form of government. But in that complexity, critically, you get a number of layers of protection against the abuse of power. So the term that if somebody just wants to step up there, language somewhat, they should say a representative democracy. We're not a direct democracy. But your question also brings me to this idea that I was touching on earlier, our mental models of democracy. So uh, if, if we want to really understand how democracy works or how it, it, it pursues a course of health, we have to recognize that democracy is not enough for the reasons that I just gave. And then you have a structure around a democracy, a constitution. So then you have a constitutional democracy. You say, well, is that enough? Well, we've learned, in fact, that democracy is not enough. Constitutional democracy is not enough. The last element is essential, which is ethical constitutional democracy. And so when I say ethical, I'm referring to everyone's been reading about and seeing writing or discussion of democratic norms or democratic values. So that concept of ethical constitutional democracy, that is really the critical formula for political happiness that has been, uh, that history has demonstrated to operate and work for democracies. So ethical constitutional democracy is what we're uh, shooting for. And I've recently recognized that what we really want to add another layer of complexity is ethical constitutional democracy rooted in malice towards none and charity for all. That's a true formula for real success of a democracy. So that's how democracy thrives when it has those various components. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder though how, you know, the things that bring people together, like the shared 
views and you know that you know that's not maybe as viscerally appealing sometimes to people as demagogue you know because i've just been thinking about why is a demagogue appealing like when i saw donald trump i mean i've known donald trump was a fraud since i was a kid like the first time i saw that guy when i was a kid i was like oh yeah that guy is ridiculous um it just never it never quite you i never understood why people fell for that but it maybe it's because that it gives them a visceral reaction, whatever whatever that might mean. Um, reminds me of this tweet I saw. I just looked it up. I did, just remembered it. It was uh, just got back from the centrist rally. Amazing now, thousands of people holding hands and chanting, "Better things aren't possible." <laughs> like at least a demagogue appeals to people on a visceral level. Whatever they're selling, you can have it right now. You know. <laughs> I, I think you characterized it relatively well and 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 it's often said in this day and age uh, you know going back uh, approximately five or six years at least to to uh, the January 6th assault on the Capitol um, that democracy is fragile I think we don't also recognize how fragile human beings are and everything in history and the study of political systems and democracy helps us to recognize that human beings are fragile to specifically to demagogues. So the demagogue, uh, I mean, sadly for a political system, uh, gains, as you know, gains attention and then power and then fame uh, through mechanisms which are the opposite of the better angels of our nature. They gain this attention and then political power through bigotry, fear-mongering, hate-mongering, division, and character assassination, and scapegoating. So I think the critical thing to recognize is just, unfortunately, that works. We, 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 we are a human animals that, again, to think of Lincoln, said, well, we need to activate the better angels of our nature. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's mainly because because we've spent most of our evolutionary time as animals and savage animals. So we still have that inter, if we think of the better angels within, we also have the inner brute. Each of us, thinking of Freud now, has within us a powerful, aggressive uh, instinct. And so we may wish that it didn't happen, that demagogues could gain power and even to the point of ascending to the White House through demagoguery. But unfortunately, it's the fact of the matter, and that is why folks who have thought about democracy have been very, very clear to say that we need to erect systems of checks and balances that essentially keep demagogues out of the political system. So this is a place where checks and balances and ethical leaders and gatekeepers of a democracy have to become active. And the Republican Party obviously did not do that with Trump. Uh, and part of the reason is I think they really don't understand democracy. They don't understand the history of democracy. They don't understand the history of demagogues. And then another piece of it is a lack of moral courage for those who did, like, like you and me, really identify that this was a very, very uh, dangerous thing. Um, so... Uh, that's another topic of another area of great interest of mine is our presidential nominating system, which again, another complex topic that we could talk hours about, but 
we reformed our presidential nominating system in the early 1970s, and those reforms have allowed demagogues to get into the presidential pipeline. So if we hadn't had the reforms moving to direct presidential primaries in the early 70s, everyone acknowledges that Donald Trump never would have been the, uh, the Republican nominee in 2016 and therefore never president, president, and we would have been spared all of this incredible pain and, and destructive influence on our democracy over the past um, yeah, and so, I've never I've never lived in a state that where it ever really mattered who I voted for in the primary of a presidential election. Like it was, I've never been California, Indiana. It doesn't matter. Like I've, it's like always like, oh yeah, what do you think? Like it in like July or whatever after Iowa voted months ago and South Carolina and all these states. That, like, why did they? It's so one person fails in this one state, the same state every time. We're never going to pick a new one. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, that's another defect with the, with the uh, in this case, my area of, of knowledge and greatest interest is the presidential. But there are primaries uh, throughout our mm-hmm. various levels of, of, of our electoral system. And so, yeah, I don't, I, I think we need uh, general elections where the people freely elect who they wish to be in power. But I don't, I don't think it's healthy. And it certainly is evidence it didn't work. It's not working now these direct primaries that we're having. So that's an area of real possible reform there. There we can be creative and give the people a voice and instill democratic systems within our, our nominating, our nominating conventions, but they don't need to be these direct primaries where we've eradicated the check and balance because the first priority of a political party, when it puts forward a candidate for president has to be that the individual is going to be constitutional is going to honor their oath of office, is going to honor free and fair elections, is going to honor the, the peaceful transfer of presidential power. So it, uh, I'll tell you, it could be interesting what happens in the, if, if in the Republican uh, nominating convention of 2024, uh, because somebody might stand up and say, look, Donald Trump is a danger to the Republic, even though he won these primaries, and it could be a catalyst for, for reforming uh, the presidential nominating system. I think that's my uh, my optimistic thinking about it. Yeah, it would be uh, fun to see uh, Liz Cheney just ride it all the way to the convention, just giving him, you know, giving him what for the whole time. That would be amusing. The most amusing outcome. People, yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't know that um, the political parties, and again here talking about the presidential nominating system, they don't know that it's utterly ungoverned or uncontrolled by state law or federal law that the political parties can do whatever they want. So a new political party could form, which decided to nominate its, pre- its presidential candidates differently, or either the Democratic Party or Republican Party today could say, well, now, now public opinion would be against them, but just to recognize the beginning of the convention, they set their rules. So they could, the convention could set a rule. Again, public opinion would be uh, a challenge, but they could set a rule which says, actually, we're unbounding all of the delegates to let them vote their consciences rather than have them vote based upon uh, the, the, the primary elections within their states. Now, there would be an uproar, of course, but I just I wanted to make sure and communicate that they have that power. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're free. They're, they're political associations. They're not part of any government system. Mm. 
Well, one thing that will be interesting to see is uh, Trump being on trial during an election season. That will be quite a spectacle. And uh, maybe even more than one place. He might be going fighting a case in Georgia. <laughs> Who knows? Um, shout, oh. out to, uh, <laughs> shout out to uh, Indiana uh, resident. Yes, Eugene B. Debs. Yes. Oh, Debs. Okay, that's right. No, he was a somewhat famous uh, demagogue. I had, I had, I, I'm not aware of that fact. Thanks for telling yes. me that. Yeah. Well, I think it was for um, protesting World War One, and he was in in prison at the time and he's still because he's always the example people cite when now it's like oh, i did i didn't run for president it's like yes it's already happened <laughs> he ran for president in 1920 and he was imprisoned in the atlanta federal penitentiary so got three four three point four percent of the vote <laughs> you bring up the, the very good point that a trump might experience uh, added indictments and I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to think of what's happened in Manhattan with the grand jury indictment there. And my, my thought, of, a couple of thoughts about that is, one, a great sense of disappointment that this case, which is complicated and weak and therefore easy target for the demagoguery of Fox News and Republicans, as we're seeing now, like Jim Jordan. So I'm deeply sort of disappointed that this came first. I'm not disappointed that Bragg has executed the rule of law here as he thinks that it is necessary, but I really feel like it would have been better for the democracy if a case, an indictment had been brought for interference with the 2020 president's election. I think that is really a meaty, critically important indictment, whereas this, again, seems less important. But at the same time, I think it, like this indictment of Trump is as historic as everyone knows, but it is nowhere near as damaging if we want to think of it that way. That though the indict, indictment of a president is such a damaging thing for democracy, that is simply not true because it is the exercise of the rule of law. And as Lincoln said in one of his great, great speeches, that the rule of law in the United States is our political religion. There is no altar higher for us than the rule of law. And so what is so damaging to our democracy now is that the disinformation and demagoguing that is happening to this sacred critical institution, which is the rule of law. That, that is what has, has me so very worried because as we all know, what is the rule of law? It is the system by which human beings, when they're in disagreement or in a state of aggression, they go in and they work through their problems in a peaceful manner. So if, if folks lose faith in the rule of law, uh, we have breakdown of system, but also a greater risk of political violence. So there's just extraordinary irresponsibility that's happening. The genie sort of was unleashed by Trump, and now we see this disinformation an attack on the rule of law, very concerning, very concerning. Mm -hmm. Well, Zoom is telling me I only have three and a half minutes left, but I'm, I, I have to say uh, I'm disappointed that Merrick Garland didn't bring in this case. It would have been stronger coming from him. It was a federal election after all, and also Michael Cohen was prosecuted federally. Also, if Trump had been prosecuted for any of the white-collar crimes he'd been committing for half a century before this, he never would have gotten to this point. 
I think you're totally right. This is a completely way too complicated and tangential case. Uh, the Georgia one would have been better, I think, probably, because that dealt, dealt more directly with the 2020 election. Do you blame Merrick Garland at all uh, for not doing that? I know he doesn't want to appear political, but it just looks like he's giving him a pass by letting the local DA do this instead of him. I don't know. I know he thinks it looks bad to come from. He's just like, oh, political persecution from Joe Biden. You know. Well, you know, the, the decision making now is in the hands of the special counsel. Uh, yes, that's Smith. true. So I think the idea there is that Merrick Garland, you know, should have brought charges a year ago. Exactly. Before he was running for pre- or had publicly announced he was running for president this year. Too, that that would have been extraordinarily valuable. You're, yes, that's right. Uh, although, so, so the question is, on the, on, I think on the surface of things, Merrick Garland really seems to be a highly ethical, thoughtful uh, lawyer and upholder of, of the Constitution. But was he in some ways motivated by fear and that caused the delay? If that's the case, that's very unfortunate. But I, I, I don't know. You're, you're supposed to be slow and deliberative when it comes to uh, a case like this. But as we look back in retrospect, we certainly wish that a case had been brought against mm. Trump. Yeah. Well, to, to quote The Wire, you come at the king, you best not miss. So I guess it's, uh, you better have a strong case if you're going to do that. Um, yeah. Anyhow. Well, we'll see what happens. I, I, it's, yeah. You know, it's the rule of law versus an authoritarian demagogue. And so, uh, for us to restore or move towards health, the rule of law needs to triumph. Yes, absolutely. All right. In the last minute we have final question. Thank you so much, by the way, uh, for doing this. I hope you come back sometime. Um, uh, last question I always ask is uh, what music have you been listening to lately? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. You know, I listen to music all day long as I'm at my computer and it is always classical of playlists such as Nocturne because mm. this music, while I'm writing and even while I'm doing emails, is very soothing for me. So uh, I've listened to some James Taylor recently as well. I have wow. two sons. One nice. is uh, 19 and one is 16, and they introduced me to rap. So I actually am a big fan of Drake as well. Wow. Very, very eclectic. Yeah, I was going to say, you're all over the place. That's great. I, like I it. love it. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you again. I appreciate it. And I uh, hope we talk again soon. All right, Rob. Great to be with you. Bye.